economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Luke Graham, co-producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gorney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We have Dr. Dustin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gorney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, Nate Johnson, my fellow producer and graduate assistant. All right. Well, today we're going to take a journey of the philosophy of mind. So looking to do a couple different parts to this. We'll see where discussion takes us, but excited to have Dr. Clark work us through this and we'll weave in some faith components as we go, as we learn what Dr. Clark has to say. Justin, take it away. All right. So we are going to start with Descartes, which is where modern philosophy begins, actually. René Descartes was a French mathematician. He was actually quite famous. He's famous in philosophy. We'll get to you know a couple of things that he said that you will probably recognize. But actually, most people have dealt with Descartes probably without knowing it. Do you guys, can you think of any math that you've done that's oh, Descartes? Cartesian. 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 What are, what's Cartesian? Uh, Cartesian geometry. Was that guess, A squared plus B squared equals C squared? That's Pythagorean. Oh, that's Pythagoras. That's (laughs) right. Okay. Well, anyone who's done geometry or even done like, you know, algebra, if you do the uh, The standard plane, basically. X, Y coordinates. Those are called Cartesian coordinates. Descartes invented those, right? Mm -hmm. He came up with Cartesian coordinates as a way to identify on a plane any point given only two numerals. Which Mm -hmm. later became for supply and demand, price and quantity axis. Yeah, Yeah, so before economists ruined it, it was a really (laughs) cool thing that he had going on. So, like I said, modern philosophy begins with Descartes. And one of the reasons we say that modern philosophy begins with Descartes was that Descartes was famous not only for what he came up with, but for the method with, with which he did philosophy. So prior to Descartes, you had kind of the medieval era of philosophy, and that was uh, came after you know the, the ancient era of philosophy. So we have ancient, medieval, and then modern. So like Aquinas would be in the in the middle? Section? Yes, and Aquinas would be the main representative. Okay. Uh, you know, and the, the ancients exemplar. would be like Plato and exactly. Aristotle. Okay, great. Now I'm learning. I am learning as we go through. Yeah. This, so. And if you actually read ancients, uh, medieval philosophy and modern philosophy, they read really differently. Uh, like Aquinas, for instance, one of the things how he would write is he would say, you know, the philosopher said blah, blah, blah. And by the philosopher, he was always referring to Aristotle. And then he would put his little spin on it. And so it was very. Which uh, is usually a Christian spin of some sort, right? Yes. He was bringing theology into philosophy. Yeah. Descartes was a, a Christian too, just to put that out there. But the way Aquinas wrote was academic in the sense that he would say, you know, this is what people in the past have said. Here are the arguments for and against what they've said. And given that they are the authorities, here's my contribution to it, blah, blah, blah. And Descartes, interestingly, is the guy who kind of makes philosophy accessible to the everyman. For Descartes, you can do philosophy on your own in your armchair at night. And that's kind of what he's doing. So his most famous work is called The Meditations. And that's really just him kind of sitting down saying, 
okay, let me just think really hard about some stuff. And I'm going to tell you what I'm thinking about. And the, the impetus for Descartes' meditations is he says he has put off for far too long kind of organizing his general mental structure. He says a bunch of the stuff that he presumably used to think he knew and grew up thinking he knew, it turned out that stuff was wrong. And that's something that I think we all relate to, right? As we grow up, we realize, you know, some of the stuff we thought was true, was false. Uh, I remember my mother telling my brother that she wouldn't cut the crusts off his bread because they just <laughs> grow back by the time he ate them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, but nothing like lying to your little ones, right? Yeah. Peter, you probably got a little bit of that going on. And it's not just that. Uh, you know, a lot of the pictures that we grow up with about how the world works, a lot of those turn out to be either simplified or, or just incorrect. Uh, the world of physics looks a lot different than, you know, the world of common sense. We can either try to make those two you know, conform with each other or say one's true and the other's an illusion, etc. But Descartes is worried about, well, how do I figure out which of my beliefs are true? Is there some kind of systematic activity whereby I could organize my thoughts into true and correct and, you know, erroneous without doing the kind of, you know, haphazard method that I'm doing right now, or right? it suddenly, you know, it suddenly dawns on me that some of my thoughts were wrong. And so he says, well, maybe, maybe I should come up with a method that allows me to find certainty. And if I can find some thoughts that are certain, I can use those as a kind of bedrock on which I can build my intellectual edifice. Because right now I've just kind of been taking things for granted. And one of the things he starts out by saying is, you know, all up, all that up to the present time I have accepted is most true and certain. I have learned either from the senses or through the senses. But it is sometimes proved from time to time that these senses are deceptive and it's wiser not to trust entirely to anything which has once deceived us. So Descartes saying, you know, I, I've trusted my senses. I trust them all the time. But it turns out that my senses sometimes deceive me. And just like I wouldn't trust a friend who lies to me sometimes, I shouldn't trust my senses if they lie to me sometimes too. And there are some classic example, you know, thought experience not even thought experiments, just personal experiments you can do to show that your senses do sometimes do deceive you, right? So, you know, the classic example is the stick, you know, in the water that looks bent, that isn't bent, right? Or you can put your hands, one in a warm water and one in cold water, right? And then take both those hands out and put both of them in lukewarm water and the water will feel warm to the one hand and cold to the other hand. And the idea is, well, then you know, your senses aren't telling you something about the water in that case, right? Because your senses, your senses are telling you two different things. Sure. And Descartes goes through some objections. He goes, you know, I can see things that are, you know, I sometimes seem to see, you know, water on the horizon, but it's not there. Is it only, you know, are my, do my senses only deceive me when things are really far away? And he goes, no, they deceive me, you know, when they're up close to, and it's, and it's not just these kinds of deceptions, but we all have these massive deceptions that most of us enter uh, you know, every 24 hours, which is what? Sleep. Dreaming, right? Uh, you know, we dream. And uh, it's very, sometimes it's very hard to tell the difference between a dream sure. and reality. Yeah. Um, and we know, I'm, I'm not sure if Descartes gets into this at this point, but like we all know people in asylums, right? This is another example of like, well, you know, those people think they're somewhere else. Yeah. So maybe and some really smart people I like John Nash, if I have to bring yeah. 
econ back uh, here a little yeah. bit, but yeah, big hallucinations. Yeah, and so Descartes isn't so much worried that, hey, there are some crazy people, right? He goes, yeah, there are some crazy people. The worry for Descartes is, how do I know that I'm not one? Everybody's right? a little crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What makes me so sure that I'm so different from those people in the asylum? Yeah. yeah. And so the question is, well, how do I figure out some certainty? He even goes as far as to say, well, what about arithmetic? Can I be sure that two and two is four? Can't it be the case that every time, you know, I work through it, couldn't somebody be kind of systematically fooling me? Couldn't there be like an evil scientist who has my brain, you know, up to an electrode? Uh, and every time I go two plus two, two plus two is really five. But every time I try to make the calculation, you know, I get the zap and, you know, the scientist uh, fools me into thinking that two plus two is four. And so his, he starts to say, well, okay, it seems like all these things, arithmetic, sensations, uh, these are all dubitable. That is, they can be doubted. And so he says, this is going to be my method. I'm going to try to come up with some kind of knowledge that I know for certain that can't even be doubted. And his, he's not saying, a lot of people take Descartes as saying, if it can be doubted, then it should be doubted in real regular life. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm trying to clean up my beliefs. Since I want to clean them up, I want to find foundation of certainty. So I'm going to try to find that piece of knowledge or those pieces of knowledge, which I can be certain about. And once I identify those, then I can build a structure on top of it. And it might be the case that some of the things that I want to believe in everyday life are uncertain. That doesn't mean I shouldn't believe them in everyday life, but that does mean that I don't want to take them as intellectual foundation. Does that make sense? Okay. So then he says, well, what can I be absolutely sure of? Can I be absolutely sure that I have, you know, my, that my fingers are real? And he goes, well, no. You know, can I be absolutely sure that I have, that I'm an, an embodied thing? He's like, no, uh, you know, you can imagine that, you know, I'm looking at, you know, my arm right now and I'm, that's fantastic, right? But maybe I was actually in a horrific motorcycle accident yesterday and lost my arm. And what I'm doing right now is merely having a dream where I still have my arm, right? This could happen. So I can't be sure that I have an arm. Descartes even goes so far as to say, I'm not even 100% sure that I have a body that I could be embodied because it seems like that's the kind of thing that I could be fooled about too. Maybe I'm just a brain in a vat with an evil, uh, for Descartes, it's an evil demon, right? Later on in philosophy. Philosophy has really advanced since Descartes. So instead of evil demon, now we say evil scientist, yeah. right? <laughs> um, so we've recognized that scientists are demons. <laughs> so Descartes says, what can I be certain of? To be certain of something, it means not only that I can't be wrong about it, but that I can't really be fooled about it. So let's assume that there is an evil demon that's trying to fool me about everything. And not only an evil demon, but an evil, all-powerful demon who is trying to fool me. Is there anything that I could know if there was an evil demon that was trying to fool me? Now, again, note, Descartes isn't saying there is an evil demon that's actually trying to fool me. But he's saying, if I could find something that I could know, even in that horrible epistemic uh, case we would be in, where there was an evil demon trying to fool us, 
well, then that would be some pretty cool knowledge because that would be the kind of thing that you could always know absolutely for certain. Yeah. It's a thought experiment. Yes. It's a thought experiment. And so, you know, his exact words were, I shall consider that the heavens, the earth, colors, figures, sound, and all other external things are nothing but the illusions and dreams of which this evil genius has availed himself in order to lay traps for my credulity. <laughs> and that's where actually where he ends the first meditation, right? So his first meditation ends by saying, all right, that's the method. I'm going to try to assume this evil demon trying to fool me about everything. What can I know? And his conclusion, what he says is, well, if I take that seriously, that means I'm mistaken about almost everything, right? Can I be mistaken about having a body? Yes. Can I be mistaken about who I'm married to? Yes. Can I be mistaken about who likes me? Yes. All of my empirical beliefs? Yes. Then he says, well, what about thinking? Can I be mistaken that I'm thinking? And he says, well, here, no, because to be mistaken is itself a form of thinking, right? So one thing I can know for sure is that I know that I'm thinking when I think I'm thinking, because <laughs> to think you're thinking just is to be thinking, right? <laughs> I hear laughter from the peanut gallery. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I actually am maybe a little skeptical of this, but it might be a, a good idea for me to come back to it after the break here. Yeah, hold yeah. on to that. Yeah, so wrap us up with a cliffhanger here, Justin, and then we'll, we'll go to a break. So I know that I'm thinking, right? And if I know that I'm thinking when I'm thinking, then there's also something else I know about myself, which is I know that I exist because there has to be something that's doing the thinking. So one thing I know is that I'm thinking and then I know that I exist, that I exist. And then the third thing I know is that I know what kind of thing I am. And that is that I I'm a thinking thing. I'm not an embodied thing because I can be fooled about having a body. I am a thinking thing because I always know when I, ex when I think, I know that I'm thinking and I know that I exist. So I know that I exist, that I can think, and I know I am the kind of thing that thinks. And you may recognize this. Have you ever heard of Dick? What's the line from Descartes? Right? I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am. In Latin, this is cogito ergo sum. It's often also just called the cogito. I think, therefore I am. If I think, then I know that I exist. So uh, that's a good place to end the first half. All right. Yep. And so I assume uh, the second half will build on now we have this foundation of a thinking being. All right. We'll be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordon Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Faith and economics in action. We have lots of events going on. If you have some high school students that are interested in various topics, we like to pay high school students with Bitcoin for participating in some of our events. Just had a great event on inflation. And we have PPE League coming up and another one called Everyday Economics. 
So we have these for college students and people of all ages. So if you have specifically a high school student, please uh, keep your eyes open and check out our website for upcoming events. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to Courtney.institute at gmail.com. All right, so we're back on Descartes, and I have an easy question for starters. What, what time frame was Descartes? Like birth, death, whatever time frame, just roughly? 1600s. 1600s, okay. So this was after Martin Luther. Just from my Lutheran perspective here, 1517 was the 95 Theses. Um, all right, so then that's the evolving, and he was the one kicking off the philosophy stuff. Now, Peter, I heard you've got some doubts about this doubting process as a tool? Yeah, I'm, there's at least appears to me maybe an inconsistency, if not, you know, just like him being incorrect. Maybe he's correct and inconsistent with his thinking. So my take on, you know, a simple phrase, I think, therefore I am, it sounds almost self-evident in a way, but like those words actually carry with them like definitions. And so when you say I, well, there, you've got to have like a, an understanding of what I is and then think, well, you have to have some sort of running definition of think and am, you know, what is existence, these sorts of things. And so the simple claim seems to carry a little bit more intellectual baggage than you might think right off the bat. And in fact, like one way to do this to maybe get rid of the words would, would be that you could reduce this to maybe some sort of like logical, maybe even a formal logical statement. But when, once you realize that, that he actually is making some sort of formal logical statement, it does drive this question to me, uh, how this is different than, for example, arithmetic. And so arithmetic would seem something that's also self-evident straightforward. Two plus two equals four is a tautology, right? Uh, I think, therefore, I am, in a way, it's sort of uh, a tautology. So, Justin, can you tell me, am I going in the right direction with this confusion here? Have other people noticed this sort of maybe either contradiction or tension or just maybe just an incorrect thing? Or am I making something up and this doesn't actually make any sense? Uh, both. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Good um, so there is actually like a running question in even the philosophy of mathematics, whether uh, what the epistemic status of arithmetical claims is. So even in the philosophy of math, like mathematicians in the early 20th century, one of the thoughts was we could reduce math to logic. So then a mathematical claim would be a tautological claim merely because it was a truth of logic. And this is like where we, we get set theory and things like that. And it's not unclear, it's not clear that that project is successful. There's things like, you know, Frege tried this and there's, there are like Russell's paradox, which shows up in Frege. And it turns out that it's very hard to reduce arithmetical truths to truths of logic anyway. Right. So it might not even be the case that all arithmetical truths are merely truths of logic. So that's sure. one question there. On the question about the definition of these words and what the substance of the claim is, I think the, the definition of I, I is an indexical, right? It refers to whoever is uttering it. And think and am in this case are interesting because I think Descartes would say something like, whatever thinking means is what the kind of, uh, it, it means what we are doing in the I think therefore I am type of example. 
it's not the case that we come up with the definition of thinking first and then figure out whether or not uh, we are thinking when we're thinking. Yeah, un unfortunately, <laughs> though, that's actually a lot more limiting than it seems on the face, because if it refers to that thing that we're doing that when we do the I think, therefore I am statement, it actually doesn't refer to anything else. We're not often making that statement, if, if that makes sense. It does make sense, but uh, when you say it's this kind of thing that I'm doing, you're not saying it's all, it is this and this only thing, right? You're saying this is an exemplar of the class of activities, which I would call thinking, mm. in which case you're, you don't make that restriction, okay. right? Sure. So it's like you can't help but think almost, isn't it? Isn't that what Descartes kind of saying is like, you're just doing it. And well, then because you're doing it, you exist. Whenever you're doing it, you know that you exist. It might be the case that you go for some stretches of time without thinking, right? But what you can't do is doubt that you're thinking because doubt itself is a form of thought. Whenever you are thinking, you are thinking and doubt is a form of thinking. So you might not be thinking when you are, you know, in a reverie, when you're fishing, right? Uh, you might, a whole hour might go by where you don't think of anything at all, right? Oh, I'm um, thinking about that fish getting on the hook, so. Or, and people describe, sometimes people, when people are in like flow states or whatever yeah, they say, like flow. I wasn't thinking at all, yeah. right? Uh, in which case, you know, Descartes might say, like, you might not even be able to prove you exist during that point, right? <laughs> what people do take issue with, with Descartes, I think, therefore I am, is some people say something like, no, you have evidence that there is thinking going on. But this, the idea that you are the person who's doing the thinking, you might not have evidence for. So some oh, people say evil scientists like, could be doing that for us somehow, maybe. Yeah, I I don't find these objections very plausible personally, but there's a large literature. Yeah, that do. And, and that wouldn't be my first objection. I, I still have like a little bit of an objection when it comes to if we can't know, maybe math isn't a tautology, but let's say it is. Let's say that two and two we identify as four. If you can't know that, it seems hard to me that like you could even say something like two is equal to two. And if you can't say two is equal to two, you can't say that thinking is equal to thinking, right? I, that it seems like that either this I think therefore I am implies more than Descartes thinks it does, or it doesn't imply what he thinks what he thinks it does. I could be wrong here. Maybe, again, I haven't thought about this as, as much as a lot of people have. But. It implies a whole lot. So okay. after he sure. establishes this, then he's going to tell you everything. He's going to branch out from there. He okay. actually thinks it implies that there is a God and that we actually can't be fooled about a lot of the things. Okay, so now we're getting somewhere. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> what he is going to say is that it involves. For Descartes, it involves a contradiction to doubt it. That it involves an explicit contradiction to doubt it. Um, and therefore, we can't actively doubt it. The only times I mean, you, you could like pass over it in silence and not think about it at all. But insofar as you are willing to entertain it, you must admit that you are doing the, that you are thinking, and therefore there is a you who's doing the thinking, or thoughts that are being had, therefore thinking exists, and therefore you are the kind of thing that thinks, etc. Right. Yeah. yeah. If you smuggle in the 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 uh, statement that we we shouldn't contradict ourselves right because yeah you have to accept that but yeah i get yeah. what you're saying that you could still say well someone must contradict themselves in order to say that this is wrong yes uh, that's his claim right yeah. and i think descartes would say to your meta point like the only way of making your thoughts intelligible or even saying that they are thoughts at all is to have the constraint of non-contradiction sure right sure. Um, yeah so then descartes 
I forgot one important argument about why Descartes thinks that we could be fooled about having a body is that he says, yeah, you, you can imagine being a mind without a body. And so, um, so that's all the sci-fi films with the brain in the jar type of thing. Uh, well, even a brain in a jar, that's kind of, you know, in that case, the brain is the body. Oh, right? there's a, it's a physical body. Oh, but okay. you can imagine something like, you know, I often, you could think about like your funeral, right? I'm, you know, I think about my funeral all the time and I think about all my <laughs> colleagues and friends who are there saying things like, oh, we should have treated Justin better. Because, <laughs> you know, we really blew it. He, uh, what a huge loss. Um, I really wish I could have told him when he was alive how important he was to me, right? And when I imagine that, I'm not imagining myself like creaking open the casket lid and listening, right? I'm kind of imagining myself floating over the, you know, <laughs> hearing you all weeping and wailing, right? I stole that example from John Campbell, who was my philosophy professor. Okay. Best one ever. But um, I steal a lot of things from John Campbell. But, you know, and he was saying, since you can conceive this, it's at least plausible that you can have a mind without a body. And then uh, later on, you know, with his, I think that I am, his idea is that we are thinking things, we are minds. And uh, interestingly, mind can get translated a couple different ways. Mm -hmm. In German, you, you can find this translated as Geist, right? And another way that Geist gets translated is spirit. Yeah. So really, Descartes is actually arguing for the existence of what we would call the soul here, right? Mind for Descartes is interchangeable with what we would call a soul, right? And so one of the implications of Descartes' argument is that it is possible for us to survive bodily death. And that is his argument that we aren't our bodies. Our personhood can survive after death, sense minds can survive after death. If we are thinking things, and we are at least in principle separable from the bodies which we contain, therefore we can survive after death. Now, before yeah, you jump yeah. in here, Descartes actually has, so this is why Descartes is sometimes called the father of the modern philosophy of mind, right? Because this idea that our minds are separate from our bodies and the thinking is kind of that we can know we can think with more certainty than we can know that we have our body. This is the, you know, big bang of modern epistemology and modern philosophy of mind. And that this distinction gives birth to all of the problems in philosophy of mind and epistemology that we are still trying to deal with. And so Descartes' analogy is that the mind interacts with the body like a pilot does a vessel. Your mind is essentially the pilot of your body. So there was a cartoon when I was growing up, um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and I know they've made a bunch of stuff after that, but there was this one character, Krang, who was like this mind inside this robot, and he controlled the robot's body with a joystick. <laughs> and that's kind of the way that Descartes thinks you interact with your body, right? You, you know, you tell your arm to go up and your arm goes up and your mind tells, you know, and also your body interacts with your mind. You eat the cheeseburger and your body says, well, you know, sends those delicious signals to your mind. Right. And then your mind tells your body, you know, put that in there again. Right. And then uh, you eat more of the cheeseburger. Right. And then your body tells your mind you're disgusting. So modern materialists, do they buy into that or is the mind and the brain you know, what is the seed of the brain if we believe the brain is the, the thinking part of us? 
then is there still tension there with materialist thinking it's still something material or Descartes is a dualist, right? So Descartes is explicitly saying there sense minds can exist separate from bodies. Yeah. Since we are thinking things and thinking things are in principle separable from embodied things, there must be two kinds of things. Yeah. There are thinking things of which we are one mental things. And then there are physical things, which is, which is our body. Materialists deny this. Yeah. And this is a different episode. We'll get into that. We're back to Next. determinism or something and that sort of stuff that we've done in previous shows. This is a parallel. Okay. This isn't quite the same thing as uh, determinism. Okay. Uh, and we're going to stay more on this dualist track. So right? we're, we're talking about the, the relation between the mind and the body. Descartes says the relation between the mind and the body is that they interact with each other and that they are two different substances. So a dualist interactionism, two different kinds of substances that interact in some manner. And this plays right into Christian theology about the soul, like you were saying. If we're thinking of this dualist thing, our bodies die, but yet we go to heaven or hell. (laughs) So can I ask a question? Yes. And uh, I want Justin's answer here, not Descartes, because I'm not uh, I'm not so interested in Descartes' answer to this, but does it necessarily, if two things are in the abstract separable, does that actually imply that they are separate? And so it seems to be that that's what the argument is saying, is that because we can conceive of the mind of, and body in abstract as being different things, then therefore they are separate things. Is that necessarily the case? Does that follow? In the one sense, yes, and the and in the other sense, I'm not sure what you mean, and probably no. So let me give an example to say why they would be, since they are in the abstract separable, they might be separate. And then that same case will show, I think, your point that like, what does this even mean, separable? Right. So uh, you can think of like a an object that is a dodecahedron that's orange, right? And we can say, well, it's colored. Oh, help me out with dodecahedron. That's a shape. A shape of something. Yeah. I was thinking multiple sides. So, okay. Yeah. Some Uh, sort of physical shape. Yeah. A geometric shape. Right. We can just think of a pyramid, right? You can think of some of the platonic something. A a pyramid. Uh, Otherwise, my dad was going to call and ask me what that was. (laughs) I had to bring that up. So, an orange pyramid, right? It's, we can say that its shape and its color are in principle separable, right? Mm -hmm. But what that really means is that. We have two different concepts with which we can classify right. it, right? Yeah. And uh, presumably, one of them could change without changing the other. Yeah, and in, in the abstract, we can imagine a blue pyramid. Yes, in the abstract. And I think you have no problem with any of that. Right? Yeah, yeah. And what, so what I'm saying with, since they are in principle separable, are they separate? Well, these concepts are separate, and the properties are therefore separate properties but but the the counter argument which you're about to get to is if the orange pyramid it becomes a blue pyramid it's no longer the orange pyramid it's a different thing right yeah the question might be something like well what about in this actual thing are they separable right. in the thing yeah and uh well maybe they are right maybe i've made this orange pyramid out of clay right and i can now take that orange pyramid and change its shape while retaining its orangeness. Mm-hmm. Um, in that case, it would be the same thing, but with a different shape. Descartes uses this example with wax, 
you know, the wax you know, statue made out of wax can be a bunch of different things. Yeah, there's sort of like a, I can't remember the name of the ship in the example, but the ship of Theseus. Yeah, the ship of Theseus is, is Theseus. Theseus is in this. So it's like how many, how you know, how many things can you replace before it's a different ship? And I think there's sort of like that mm. question underlies this too. <laughs> well, the ship of Theseus, you actually replace all the boards right. while you're at yeah. sea, right? Yeah, and the idea is it's the, still the same ship, even though it's composed of completely different things. So maybe what you're getting at is something like, are they for the mind and the body? Is this the argument like, well, yeah, are at, they really separable? Yeah. At, at what point would taking one of them away permanently change the nature of the thing, right? In a significant way. I don't know what that means exactly significant, but. So let me give you an example. You know, we often say this is, this is something that can happen, like with somebody who has, you know, suffers a real like brain injury, mm-hmm. right? And we can say that they no longer have mental faculties, right? right? So we yeah. will say things like, and the person's really not there anymore, yeah, right? Yeah. Even though the body's there. Sure. Uh, you know, I remember, you know, when my grandfather died, I remember showing up and I remember it was, I was distraught because I showed up late at the hospital. You know, what they tell you is they don't, you know, they say your grandfather's gone, his body's still here. Right? Yeah. Um, so that's uh, the sense in which Descartes would say they're Separate. separable. Okay. Um, yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, that looks like a good spot to wrap for this part one. Where are you taking us in the next episode, Justin? So that was the picture that Descartes gives us. And what I haven't told you is all of the problems that arise with this picture. Oh, beyond and Peter's problems? Or? Yes. They're um, <laughs> actually good. Good points. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I said this was kind of the big, big bang of, you know, the philosophy of mind and it and the problems that, that the come with that. Yeah. There is a huge problem with how the mind and the body interact according to this view. It's not clear that they can, and it's not clear that we can even make sense of how it's even conceptually possible that they interact. So, so it's going trying to, to solve that problem <laughs> is going to lead us into other conceptions of the relationship between the mind and the body, each of which unless you think any of them succeed, will have problems themselves. All right. Well, that looks like a good spot to wrap. This has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Five-star rating helps other people find us. And otherwise, please forward on our episodes to your friends and family, the ones that you think they might like and get a start on. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.